Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Well, somebody told me, Sister Elizabeth, that uh, heavenly language would be Kiswahili. So, hamjambo mabibi namabana habari. It's good to be here. It's a great privilege to be here. Dina, a great joy. Uh, I can't think of a place that my family and I would rather be our first time across the pond uh, in this part of the world. Uh, we want to especially thank you not only for the privilege of, of being here and speaking here, but we want to thank you especially for the last couple of days when you ordered a little sunshine for us. <laughs> we're thankful, we're gracious. You all are gracious and hospitable. I appreciate uh, my esteemed colleagues here on the panel sort of warming you up. I'm, ethnically speaking, I'm an African-American. If you know anything about black churches, you know that those are churches that talk back to you. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> And if it gets really good, you just say, well. <laughs> and then we moved to the Caribbean, and, and I hadn't heard talking back until I moved to the Caribbean, you know, with a nice little accent. Amen, mon. <laughs> well, it is indeed a joy to be here. Um, as, as, as was introduced, not that this is particularly important, but my name is Thabiti Anyabwili, and people will often ask me how to pronounce that. Um, listen, don't, don't stress over that at all. My own people call me Pastor T, and that's fine. And the particularly curious want to know, well, what does it mean? Does it have a meaning? Well, this is a Swahili name, and, and loosely translated, it means something like, I can't wait to go to Maud's for some ice cream. <laughs> well, it's a joy to share with you the work of God's grace in my own life, the account of God intercepting me on this path to wrath, the account of his, his gracious and sovereign work in turning my heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, I trust, of changing my fortunes from a most certain judgment to liberty and joy and love, and an indestructible life. It's a joy to share that. If you have your Bibles with you, I wonder if you would turn with me to the second chapter of Ephesians. If you're here and you're a Christian, I want to encourage you to think of these first ten verses as biographical. What we have described in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 10, is, is not only a, sort of an account that I'm claiming as, as biographical, as a, as a representation of what has happened in my own life, but if we're Christians, if we've come to know Christ, we've come to believe on him, to see him as the Savior that he is, to, to love him and to trust him and to, to repose our souls upon him as it were, to trust in his finished work on the cross. And these 10 verses are your biography as well. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, the Apostle Paul, inspired by God's Spirit, pins these words to these Christians. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins 
in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Lord, we join hearts and minds and words in prayer together this evening. We pray and ask, Lord, that you would come Come, Lord Jesus. And we pray that if you should tarry long enough for us to finish examining your word, if you should decide not to come even in an instant, that you would stir in us a deeper longing to be with you where you are, a deeper desire to see you, not mediated by faith, but to see you face to face, to see you and to be satisfied with your glory. And we pray that this longing would be so strong that we would forsake this world, that we would not be blinded by the illusion that things in this life are permanent, but rather, O Lord, our hearts would be set in heaven with you and that we would live this day in light of that coming day when you shall split the sky and those who pierced you shall see you. And those who love you shall be caught up together with you. And we shall then really begin to live. Oh, bless this word to our souls, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. I used to work with a uh, little community-based organization um, in my home state of North Carolina. It was an organization that was dedicated to helping people, adults with disabilities, find employment and to work competitively in the marketplace. It was probably the most challenging and rewarding work aside from pastoral ministry that I think I've ever done. Uh, I worked with one man who was blind and deaf and his job was food prep in in a kitchen. He was handling blades and and chopping food and doing it expertly. I worked with other folks who were born with disabilities who did all manner of of heroic things in the workplace. But I had one person that I worked with who was a particular favorite. His name was Dexter. Dexter was excited about all of life. I mean, Dexter's favorite word was, wow. And he said it like that every time he said it, wow. 
Now, Dexter's problem was he wasn't a particularly good worker, so he lost a lot of jobs. He was easy to fire because he was excited that he got fired, but, you know, made my job a little bit harder. I remember one day helping Dexter um, through a series of interviews. These are my last four or five leads for Dexter. We spent the day interview after interview, and Dexter completely bombed in each interview. I mean, it was just terrible. And after each interview, you go, wow, that went well. And we finished up the last interview, and, and Dexter just, it was the worst performance of the day. I think he was tired by that point, and so even for Dexter, he was off his game. And, and we're leaving the, the place, and he says, wow, that was a great interview. And I'm scratching my head thinking, now, what am I going to do next? I don't have any more leads for Dexter. I don't know how, what are we going to do? And, and he's, he's excited, and, and we're walking through the cobblestone streets of, of downtown Raleigh, North Carolina, and, and everything Dexter passed, Dexter's excited about. So we saw this hot dog vendor, and Dexter goes, wow, did you see that hot dog? You know, we, we walk a little bit further, and Dexter saw an attractive lady. He goes, wow, did you see that lady? And, you know, sometimes when you're listening, you're not really listening. You, you just sort of start to respond automatically. So every time Dexter got excited, I would say, yeah, 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 Dexter, I saw it, I saw it. Well, we go a little ways further, and Dexter goes, wow, did you see that? And my automatic response kicks in, yeah, 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 Dexter, I saw it, I saw it. I took a few more paces, and I realized that Dexter wasn't traveling with me anymore. He had stopped. So I, I turned around and looked at Dexter, and he had the most quizzical look on his face. I mean, with, with all the sincerity he could muster, I mean, he was just perplexed. And he looked at me and he said, well, why did you step in it? <laughs> we can tell jokes like that in the Baptist church. I'm not <laughs> this is the de- don't step in it part of the text, verses 1 to 3. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the rule of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Perhaps you hear this evening and you're not a Christian. You've come with a family member or a friend. You've been invited out. You've been told there's this guy there with a funny name who's going to tell us his story. I wonder if you can see that verses 1 to 3 have not only application to Christians, but have an urgent application to you. See what, what is being described in God's word, how people who were not Christians before they became Christians are being described. Verse 1, you were dead. Can you think of a more desperate condition than dead? Not sick, not weak, not tired, but dead in your transgressions and your sins. Verse 2, you used to live this way or you currently live this way if you're not a Christian when, when you follow the ways of this world and of the rule of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. And we share this with you, my non-Christian friend, not out of some sense of superiority, not out of some sense of, of being perfect people having it all together, but, but because we know verse 3 is true. All of us also lived among them. We all lived this way at one time. And how was that? Gratified 
the desires of our sinful nature. That was my life growing up in North Carolina. I grew up in a small town in North Carolina. North Carolina is part of the southeastern United States, which is popularly called the Bible Belt. It's called the Bible Belt because there, culturally speaking, most people would describe themselves as Christians. It's a place where Christianity is really quite nominal, though, as to say that many people are Christians in name only. That was my family. I grew up in a family that was nominally Christian. We would have described ourselves as Christians not because we had a saving faith in Christ, not because we knew anything about the gospel, not because we were living to follow the Lord, but pretty much because we knew we weren't something else. You know, all of our, our grandparents or great-grands, etc., had been members of Baptist churches, and so we were, we were Baptists by birthright. We weren't Christians. The only thing I really knew of church growing up was, I'm the youngest of eight kids, and my older brothers, whenever they got into trouble, they cleaned themselves up by going to church. They get in church, they get into a little trouble, and they, they feel a sense of, okay, I'm guilty, I need to sort of get things back together. And they'd hang out in the church for a little while, and after a little while, they would go, they'd go back to whatever they were doing. That's really about all I knew of church. My junior year in high school, I got arrested. The charge was, was embezzlement, uh, misdemeanor embezzlement, but the, the real charge, if they could have put it in, in paper and charged me with it, would have been stupidity. You know, just being a dumb teenager. I got arrested. Now, in this little town of, of, of maybe 25,000 people where everybody knows everybody and everybody's nominally Christian, word spreads pretty fast. So I got arrested. I had been up to that point an A, B student in school, you know, without hardly trying. Um, I was a, a pretty good athlete um, playing basketball. And I had began to sort of gratify my sinful nature. I had began to feed that nature the things that it wanted. So whether that was, whether that was alcohol as a minor, whether that was defrauding young girls, any number of sins that I can enumerate, that had become my life. I mean, when I look at verse 3, I, I know that the Bible is, is trustworthy because what it's telling me about my own nature is so accurate. My sins were coming into full flower. And God in his mercy, the first stroke of mercy was to, was to arrest me, first by human authorities. So as a high school athlete, very popular, very, very successful in many ways, in a worldly way, not really wanting or lacking anything, I found myself arrested, found myself in this jail cell, and then all of that false popularity started falling down around me. And friends started distancing themselves from me. It was the first time I'd really known, come to know, that our sins aren't just personal and private, and in fact are public. They hurt others. My mother is the kind of, maybe your mother's like this, she's the kind of woman that could beat you to death with silence. She doesn't have to say much, you know, and, and you know when she's displeased. And my mom had one rule for my, and she really developed by experience with my older brothers and my uncles, which was, you know what, if you get arrested, I'll come bail you out one time. After that, you're on your own. So now I'm arrested downtown, and I'm thinking, yep, this is my one phone call. <laughs> so I called my mother, and she, I said, Mom, would you, would you come pick me up? 
And she says, well, where are you? I said, I'm, I'm uptown. She says, where uptown? And I told her, I said, well, I'm actually, mom, I'm in jail. Silence on the other end. She says, I'll come get you. So she comes uptown, she picks me up. It's an embarrassing thing for my mother. As I said, it's a small town. My mother is, is somewhat prominent in the town. Um, she picks me up, we drive home, complete silence. She tells me to go into the, into the house, not to leave the house, and to let her think a bit. The only thing worse than my mother getting silent is my mother humming. <laughs> my mom went into the kitchen, and after a couple minutes, I heard her humming. Now, I didn't know much about the Bible or who Jesus was, but I was pretty sure he was coming back soon when she went to humming. And so I go in and I said, Mom, would you please talk to me? And I'll never forget, she, she had words that, that split me in half. And it was just an indication of her own pain caused by my sin. She said, I thought I would have at least one son who would be somebody. And I stood there just opened up. And the first thought that came to me was, I'd better go to church. So I went to church, started going to church for several months, really, very faithfully, each Sunday. It wasn't a church where the gospel was preached clearly. There were wonderful people there, nice people, but it wasn't a church that, that made the, the message of Jesus Christ particularly clear. And so I attended Sunday after Sunday, and I even, I even got baptized. I even got dunked in the water, as it were, but, but I didn't know who Jesus was. I, was, I didn't know what the gospel was. I had not repented of my sins. I had not come to follow Christ. I, I was just trying to get myself right. And so even after that baptismal service, when I got up out of the water and dried off, I went around the corner and, and continued in the activities that had gotten me into trouble to begin with. That's my life as a teenager. My father left when I was about 14, and I grew particularly angry. I didn't know it at the time, but I was, I was vacillating between anger and depression. I had a high school uh, literature teacher who took an interest in me. She was an eccentric little Jewish lady. If any of you have seen the movie Nanny McPhee, she looked just like Nanny McPhee at the beginning of the movie. You know? But she was a wonderful lady, and, and maybe because the two of us were something of oddballs in our town, she, a Jewish lady transplanted from the northern United States, and, and me, this angry little kid, she started trying to help me by giving me things to read. Now, bless her heart, if, if you know anything about the sort of history, the political history of the United States, you know the 1960s was a very volatile time. The nation sort of exploded in riots as African Americans were protesting for civil rights, the right to vote and, and the right to eat and live wherever they would, would want to. Well, there's a strain of that movement that is really quite radical. And this lady started giving me, the angry teenager, the writings of these 1960s radicals. You know, a little bit like giving matches to a pyromaniac, you know. And I started devouring this stuff. And I'm getting angrier and angrier. More and more angry. A year's time, I graduate from high school, I go off to university, and I'm still angry. I walk around this campus, and my wife here, my dear wife, whom I should have introduced, and my daughters, who um, has been a blessing to me in the Lord. My wife could tell you I would walk around the campus with a, just a scowl etched in my face. And, and, and we could walk through a crowded campus, and, and like the Red Sea, people would just sort of open up around us and, and give us space, right? This angry kid could walk through. 
Well, I, that freshman year, I continued angrily through my studies. And near the end of that year, I saw these men on campus, very clean cut. They were attending all of the student meetings and, and every once in a while making speeches themselves or making comments themselves. And, and what they were talking about intrigued me greatly. They were talking a lot about the need for men, particularly African-American men, to care for their families. Now, just a little statistical evidence about why that's important. Right now in the United States, seven out of 10 children born to African-American mothers are born into homes without their father. In the major cities, that number can be as high as nine out of 10. There's a great hunger for fathers. There's a great hunger to see manhood, masculinity, commitment. And I was hungering for that. And here these men were, these clean men, talking about that issue and talking about the need for African-American men to care for their families and to, to care for their communities, to give back, to be, to be productive members of the culture and the society. And I was drawn to that. And lo and behold, these were Muslim men. In the United States, the fastest population of, of growing population of Muslims in the United States are African-Americans converting to Islam faster than any group in the country. Of the about, uh, this, these, these numbers are a little bit dated, maybe five to 10 years old now, of the four million Muslims in the United States, 45% of them are African-American. So when we're talking about Islam in the States, this is no small population. Well, I'm drawn to them. I'm attracted to them. I find out that they're Muslims. I had been reading in the course of reading about the civil rights movement in African American history, had been reading a lot about Muslims and Islam. And my sophomore year converted to Islam, became a practicing Muslim. And I became, in short order, something of the campus Saul. Islam for me was not a private faith. It wasn't, wasn't just me making prayer five times a day and participating in the other pillars. I became something of lack of a better word, an evangelist for Islam. I became the campus Saul. So wherever there was opportunity to oppose Christian students, wherever there was opportunity um, to, 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 to throw over the faith of others that I could, where I could, I took that opportunity. I was zealous for Islam and an enemy of the cross. You see, in that little church that didn't preach the gospel clearly, in that little church where I had been baptized but had not entered into saving faith, the experience in that little church, I came to believe that Christianity was this sort of pie-in-the-sky religion. This is religion that was great for little, I shouldn't use this in a room like this, little gray-haired ladies. But not, not for me, not for people who could, who could do something, who could stand on their own two feet. And, and what Islam was promising was a system that organized all of life system of belief and a system of practice. Islam, if you know the, the narrative of Islam, it claims to be the, the sort of perfect religion. And Muhammad is the, the final and the seal of, of all the prophets. And Judaism is likened to elementary school and Christianity to high school, but Islam is the university. I believe that narrative. I believe all that it taught. I became zealous for it. Lived that way for several years, just opposing the cross and opposing Christians. Before the Lord intercepted me again in his kindness. What if you've noticed in our text, verse 4. 
The NIV puts it this way. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. I like the way the authorized version puts it or the King James puts it. Puts the emphasis on God. It says, but God, because of his great love for us. That, that sort of interjection. Verses 1 to 3, men in their sins are headed toward the wrath of God. They're described as children of disobedience and sons of wrath. We're like the spiritually stillborn children of this violent marriage of wrath and disobedience. Our disobedience in the face of God's wrath. And then we come to verse 4. We hit that three-letter word, but. I love the three-letter words of Scripture. They turn the entire passage around. We come to verse 4. But God is rich in mercy because of his great love for us. The Lord showed me love. After several years of of opposing the cross, I remember I was up one, one morning early. It was Ramadan was up for prayer and fasting to read the Quran and already made morning prayer and I was sitting at my study at my desk reading the Quran and the only way I can describe it is is like it was a a blanket of rain that just sort of settled over me but this awareness that what I was reading could not be true it just wasn't consistent on its own terms I was reading in Surah Maryam. I was reading in one of the chapters on the Virgin Mary. And in the Quran, the virgin birth of Christ is being taught. And, and it was though, you know, a light went off. And I thought, well, if he's virgin born, who's his father? Now, every Muslim worth his weight in salt will deny that Christ is uniquely the son of God. And here is this chapter that reads almost like plagiarism from the birth narratives in the gospel. And I thought, well, how do we affirm the virgin birth and deny the deity of Christ? I read a little bit further, and I'm reading in the Quran where Muhammad in his day is is in conversation with Jews and Christians of his day. And in the Quran, Muhammad says, bring me your books. Bring me the Torah. Bring me the first five books of the Bible. Bring me the Psalms of David. Bring me the Gospels, and I will show you the truth in your books. The Quran affirms those parts of the Bible, and and yet every Muslim I knew had never read them. I was starting in all these ways, on all these issues, issue after issue, that have these conflicts. Islam was admitting too much on the one hand, and not enough on the other hand. Now, because I was still stuck in verses 1 to 3, I didn't come to Christ right away. In the hardness of my heart, I I threw my hands up and I said, you know what? All religions are just as false. You know, my best days, I was an agnostic. I would say, maybe there's a God, but who can know? Who can know him? And on my worst days, I was was atheistic in my tendency. And you you know the propaganda of the United States, the land of opportunity and you know, if you work hard, you can make it, etc. And so my wife and I, we began to live for ourselves. We began to live a very materialistic life. Our, our motto, uh, maybe you've heard this, our motto was get all you can, can all you get, then sit on your can. 
That's what we were aiming at. We wanted to be rich by 45 and to retire to a small secluded island. Well, we're not rich, and the Lord in his humor has sent us to a small island to pastor 300 people. But I was, I was hardening my heart still. And we lived that way for about a year. And I don't think there's ever been a time when my relationship with my wife has been more in trouble. And that year, where in my own heart, I was working to deny the existence of God hardening my heart to the obvious evidence of his presence in all of creation. Well, after about a year, my wife and I, we got pregnant for the first time. I'm the youngest of eight children. My wife is the youngest girl of eight children. And so it was a big celebration in our families, which really got along quite well. It was as though the babies are now having babies. And so it, for the first three months of the pregnancy, it was like one long party, one long celebration. At the third month of the pregnancy, we were to go to the, the baby doctor. We go to the doctor to hear the baby's heartbeat for the first time. And you can imagine the joy we, went, we entered into that room with and just the anticipation. I could hardly sit down. I was pacing the, the, the waiting room, just looking forward to being in the doctor's office and, and seeing for the first time this, this baby's heartbeat on the monitor. And so we go into the room. We're ushered there. We're prepared. Um, the ultrasound begins. And after about 10 minutes, no no heartbeat. Another couple minutes in the, in the coldest human voice I think I've ever heard, the doctor turned and said, I'm sorry, there's no heartbeat. And through tears, we pleaded with her to try again. Same answer, no heartbeat. My wife was laying on that table, shattered, just bawling. And there was there was nothing I could do to console her. She was crying in a place that I couldn't reach. And my own heart was breaking. I couldn't help myself standing there in that room that moment. I felt as I should have felt all along, small in the world, hopeless. For the next couple of months, were months of depression for me. I was sitting at home, flipping through the television channels, not looking for anything in particular. I should have been at work, but I didn't want to hang out with Dexter that day. And I'm flipping through the channels, and a preacher comes on to television. And you got to remember, I, I, I stand before you admitting to having been an enemy of the cross. And at the time, I could not have explained to you why I stopped to listen to that preacher. It wasn't even a particularly evangelistic message. He was in, in Paul's letter to Timothy, study yourself, study to show yourself approved, a workman who need not be ashamed. But the words had life. It was just being drawn, inexplicably drawn. And so I started taping his shows and watching his shows regularly. And my wife, my wife came home and I said, look, you, you got to watch this. You got to watch this guy. You, you know, check out this preacher. And she sort of looked at me like, you know, what's, why are you watching preachers? What's going on? And we started watching his shows and we figured out where his church was. And we visited his church a couple of months later. And he preached there that Sunday morning, the gospel. And I heard it for the first time. He was preaching from Exodus chapter 32 the golden calf passage. 
And he was talking about the idolatry of our culture, the idolatry of self, of material things, and so on and so forth. And he was, he was doing a good law work, as the old divines used to say. He was, he was talking about sin and the sinfulness of sin. And, and as he enumerated sins, I, was, I thought, yep, I did that one, I did that one, I did that one 20 times. And, and by the end of the thing, I was, it, wasn't, it wasn't a problem with individual sins. It was clear to me that I was a sinner. It was who I was. Clear to me that I couldn't save myself. I couldn't rescue myself. And having been a Muslim for a number of years, it was also clear to me that there was no answer in Islam. The righteousness I needed to stand before God, I just didn't have. I was bankrupt before Him. And this pastor brilliantly held out Christ the unique Son of God, God the Son. Yes, born of a virgin, fully God and fully man, who entered space and time, entered his own creation, took upon himself flesh, and lived the life that I could not live. Offered to God the Father the perfection that I owed him as his creature, but that I had failed to deliver. And more than that, because of God's great love, took upon himself the wrath of God against sin. And he held Christ out, and it became evident to me that Christ had died in my place. He had given himself as a ransom for me. And the Father's wrath was satisfied upon him. Here I was, this angry, this angry young man, bitter and hardened of heart, seeing for the first time with the eyes of faith that there was an anger greater than mine. It's the righteous indignation of a holy God against the sins of his creation. And that there was a love greater even than that anger. It was the love of that same God who sent his son to bear on that cross my sins and to take upon himself the punishment that I deserve. And in God's kindness, in his grace, those 13 years ago, he turned me from myself and from my sins to enter into this grace, this grace that verse 5 made me alive with Christ. The Lord saved me that day. And in his kindness, saved my wife that same day. We have now for 13 years been, by his grace, following the Lord, seeking to bring him honor, seeking to bring him glory. I've had the privilege of talking about Islam now on a couple of different continents, of engaging in, in public discussion, public debate uh, in the Middle East about Islam and Christianity and who Christ is. I count it an, an, immeasurable, an immeasurable grace that the Lord would take the chief of sinners, me, and allow me to proclaim his gospel, allow him to proclaim the glory, the wondrous glory of his saving love accomplished in Christ Jesus his son. I've been to Mecca. 
is a dry and barren place. And I've been to Calvary where the grass is soaked with the blood of the Son of God and where love and grace and mercy meet justice and sinners are freed. Let's pray together. Lord, we sit in awe of your matchless love. A love beyond description. A grace without measure. We marvel that you would take men and women ruined by sin, hostile toward you, rebels with no just cause, and that you would adopt them into your family as your very own children, that you would unite them to yourself through faith, that you would cleanse them of their sins, that you would remove their sins from them as far as the east is from the west. We marvel that you would justify us by faith in your son and that you would glorify us together with him when you come. Lord, we long for that day when we shall be clothed with immortality and we will, will sing more perfectly of your grace, your glorious grace, and this wondrous salvation. Thank you, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.